0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and I'm really happy to bring you my conversation with Mike Lucan. Mike's one of the founders of Rock Partners, and he's currently the managing partner of the investment house that specializes in private assets. We talk to Mike about the his firm being spun out of Macquarie Bank. We talk about private equity, the transactions, and how they invest into the private equity space. And we also talk about private credit with a with quite detail towards the end of the podcast. Mike talks about the early influences in his life coming from immigrant parents, and he talks about the outlook for the markets in the private equity space. Hope you enjoy the podcast as much as I did. Please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. As a reminder to listeners, this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it specific advice or any advice of any sorts. People are always encouraged to receive advice and read all disclosure documents. Please do keep your correspondence coming in. I love those emails. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. The suggestions for who we can have on the show, who are those leading minds in wealth management are really helpful. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Michael Lucan, welcome to Inside the Rope.
1: Great. Great to be here, David. Thank you for the
0: opportunity. So perhaps for our listeners, you could uh, kick off by letting them know who you are.
1: Yeah, no problem at all. Uh, I'm Mike Lucan. Uh, I'm the founder, one of the kind of original founding shareholders of Rock Partners. Uh, I've been doing private equity for just on 25 years now. So I grew up in the gong uh, down the coast, Um, probably a typical kind of Australian migrant story. Parents came here. Um, with not much kind of worked really hard, uh, put me through, uh, Catholic school down there and then into university in Sydney and, uh, found myself with the maths degree and thinking, what am I going to do with that? I don't definitely don't want to be a maths teacher. And, uh, the kind of obvious opportunity was finance. And so that led me into, uh, investment consulting with a focus on private markets, uh, with venture capital and private equity just kicking off in Australia and then moving to Macquarie and and really at the start of private markets investing in Australia for institutional investors and, and kicking off a business there, which eventually formed Rock Partners. Okay.
0: You've covered a lot there. And it was interesting when I, I sort of looked into your your background and had a little bit of a snoop online, you know, the first thing I discovered is I felt, gee, I felt a little bit old because, uh, I could see you finish uni a couple of years after me that, uh, was an extra kicker to start the year, um, and then that you're a pure math major and an actuary. Yeah. And I thought, gee, this, this could be a, a little bit dull, but we've kicked off with a little bit more colour, so that's
1: good. Well, I think there's, there's probably two forms of actuaries, ones with uh, cardigan-wearing tendencies and ones that uh, wear shirts with no ties, and I'm fortunate enough to be the guy with the, the shirt and no tie. And, um, you know, doing applied or fi- finance and maths at, at university um, – you know, kind of, I always had an interest in uh, investment, used to read the kind of finance pages as a kid and kind of that said to me, well, maybe that's my career path and where I should go. And as a as a maths major, I guess, looked at actuarial studies as a way to kind of prove that I can actually understand finance, um, but never wanted to be the, the guy in the back office at AMP working out when people are going to die. That's definitely not uh, in my personality at all. And so that led me to Consulting and kind of focusing on uh, modeling and kind of understanding, you know, the basics of, you know, how you invest in, you know, private equity investments, venture capital investments. Um, and, you know, probably a little bit of luck as well on the way through kind of happened to, you know, to a certain extent fall into a market that just has taken off over the last 25 years. You know, kind of when I started in private markets. You know, most Australian super funds had a BT balance fund, or Rothschild balance fund and maybe colonial first state. And that was called diversification. Uh, and in the late 90s, we saw dot com 1.0 and I happened to be working in a consulting firm, helping the Commonwealth Government super scheme and the Commonwealth Government on the Innovation Investment Fund program. And that really gave me um, the leg into what's become, you know, a really big part of you know kind of people's overall asset allocation these days you know our institutional clients are uh, 30 to 50 percent of liquids you know 10 to 20 percent private equity and venture capital uh, and increasingly we're seeing high net worth family offices endowments kind of following that model and in some cases looking to surpass what some of the big aussie super funds are doing
0: so mike before we get into the weeds i just want to circle back you you mentioned you came from a, an immigrant background and story and I, I often love these stories um, you know we as parents I'm not sure about yourself mm. often find ourselves in situations and I, I love the the Warren Buffett quote is you, you want to give them enough that they can do everything but you don't want to give them enough that they can that they can do nothing um, and and I love these stories of grit what what did that background and raising do you think give you that has has contributed to
1: where you are now yeah look I think I think there's a couple of things. One is the value of hard work. There's no substitute for hard work. I think, you know, a lot of people work hard and don't get lucky, but if you don't put the work in, you just don't generate the luck either. And I think to a certain extent that work ethic has really kind of underpinned the way I think about, you know, kind of how I do my job. Uh, It's that work ethic I'm trying to put into my kids as well. Uh, and, and it is difficult, but, you know, kind of, I had the privilege, I guess, to a certain extent of seeing, you know, kind of how you kind of, you know, use hard work to, to build a, you know, business. And, um, you know, we talked about business over the, you know, kind of dinner table and some was good and a lot of it was bad as well. So, you know, interest rates, business loans at 22%. And what does that mean as a, you know, kind of someone in the construction industry, uh, as everyone knows, that's not good for, for kind of property prices and the like. So, you know, you learn a lot about hard work. You learn a lot about economic cycles in that kind of environment, you know, kind of, I was fortunate enough, self-employed parents. Um, so I saw, you know, the effect of the economy on, on small business. I saw the effect of interest rates and, you know, that understanding at a very early age, I think particularly having, you know, had a 25 year Career in an economy that really hasn't gone backwards for any you know protracted period of time. You know, really, you know, I've been you know kind of I came into the workforce probably as we were coming out of the the '90s recession, the recession we had to have, and you know kind of ever since that time, probably until most recently, we've seen interest rates falling, we've seen unemployment falling, you've seen quality of life improving, you've seen inflation tamed. Um, so it's been a really benign economic environment. and Huge I think, tailwind for asset prices. Absolutely. And I think having that, you know, kind of history and, and kind of, you know, having lived it as a kid, I kind of always have that in the back of my mind is what's around the corner? What's the risk that we don't see? What does this look like if the economy does go bang? And I think that's put us in pretty good stead as a, you know, as an investment house is just having that focus on risk and... And ensuring that you know the good times don't last forever and we need to be prepared for the bad times and you know if we're fortunate enough we don't see them then that's you know kind of that's going to mean outsized returns as opposed to you know kind of losing people money so tell us about that investment house yeah so rock partners we are uh one of the largest private markets firms in australia we have over eight uh, eight, over nine billion dollars actually these days in assets under management Uh, The business started in Macquarie in the late nineties, as I said, you know, kind of looking at, you know, helping institutional investors come and invest in venture capital as, you know, kind of Google and, you know, Amazon and pets.com, you know, the good ones and the bad ones got started in the late nineties and having, you know, kind of institutional investors saying, we want a bit of that venture capital stuff. That sounds really cool. Um, So we started there. We started by investing with, in funds. Uh, and then kind of investing in those private equity funds globally, uh, moved into co-investing, so investing alongside those funds in specific deals, uh, moved into secondary transactions, so buying mature positions off investors who are getting out of the asset class, uh, and then formed Rock Partners in 2014. Really, while Macquarie was a great training ground and a great place to um, to, to work and and you know spent 15 great years at Macquarie, as a boutique, we were just going to be far better aligned with our investors. You know, we have equity skin in the game these days. We have GP commitment, we have true alignment of interest with our investors in everything we do. And it's really I think, you know, the the key to why private equity works and you know, I you know, heard it on a bunch of your podcasts earlier around alignment of interest. And and I genuinely believe that is the difference between say private markets investing and public investing is that alignment of interest all the way through from the investor to the business is unbroken and so um, we really launched rock partners on the back of that having that strong alignment of interest. Um, We've gone on to call it plug gaps in the private market space in Australia so we have a a book of about two billion dollars of food and agribusiness uh, exposure in Australia all directly held some really cool businesses there we own one of the largest wagyu beef businesses in the country Um, most of the oysters you eat at a Sydney restaurant come from one of our farms um, we have a great glasshouse business in that portfolio uh, and really helping support succession, capital investment and corporatisation in the agriculture space with what we're doing there. Uh, we have a, you know, another gap in the market is the private equity market in Australia has become really consolidated, particularly after the global financial crisis. And we saw a gap in the market for the family business, the, the entrepreneur who's looking for $20 million of equity capital. You know, if they're looking for 50, there's a lot of opportunity to go to private equity to get that money. If they're looking to five to 10, if they've got some good mates and good family, they can probably, you know, kind of rattle the tin and get that money. So there was a real gap in the market. And so we built a team around that and have about a billion dollars now there. And then most recently, we've launched a private credit fund. Um, That private credit strategy is all about you know, I think one of the things we learned through being in the private markets for so long was, you know, we'd sit around board tables with these portfolio companies and they'd really be hamstrung by the fact we have a big four banking system in Australia and, you know, a propensity to go and loan money to mortgages at the expense of business banking. And if you look at what's happened around the world, you know, 80% of private equity leverage these days in the US and Europe is non bank you know, it's fund managers kind of plugging that gap. It's a very small banking uh, part of that market. Whereas in Australia, we're the other way around. It's still 80% bank led. You know, there's a small number of private capital firms that are, are getting up and running. And, and we were sitting there on these, you know, at these board tables discussing debt packages and saying, this is crazy. We've got a bunch of high net worth investors and institutional investors who are looking for yield in great businesses You know, at the time when we launched the program, rates were basically zero. It's like, where do I go to get return in my, you know, income-producing assets? And here we were owning some of the best quality healthcare companies in the market and paying away 500 basis points of spread and 5% upfront to get, you know, a relatively modest amount of leverage against these really great, stable healthcare businesses. And so we kind of married the two together and we built a business there and now have $500 million of assets that we manage, predominantly around, you know, healthcare, government services. We're trying to really focus on industries that aren't volatile. You won't see us doing construction loans. You won't see us doing, you know, retail, discretionary retail. It'll be, you know, very much basics. You know, people have got to go to the doctor. People have got to go get their knee scan if they blow their knee going skiing, you know, that ndis you know kind of people on the ndis will need services from ndis ndis providers Um, they're the types of businesses we're trying to lend money into and so you know we've built a business now we've got 65 people in the team we you know i keep kind of finding that every time i look at the number it keeps going up which is probably a good sign Uh, we have four offices we're based in sydney melbourne hong kong and shanghai so Really great insights into China and what we're doing, what's happening up there with with a team on the ground, and then a really kind of blue chip kind of investor base. So a whole bunch of institutional investors that um, that we've you know kind of helped with their private markets programs for a long time, and increasingly a high net worth uh, you know group of investors who are really kind of getting into private markets in a big way over the last probably five years. And and
0: Mike.
1: The business spun
0: out of and a management buyout of Macquarie, how does that come about? And do you think it's something that Macquarie sits at, sits there and says, today, gee, we let that go, we missed an opportunity, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I, look, I kind of, I retell this story on a regular basis. I think for a, for a protracted period of time there, probably six to 12 months, I would go home <laughs> to my wife and uh, I'd say, well, guess what? we're going to have a management buyout that we're going to be a shareholder in. And then the next day I'd be, I'm going to be on gardening leave for the next two years because they've punted me out of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, I think there was a couple of factors that, that gave us the opportunity to, to, to do a management buyout. It is absolutely rare for Macquarie to let things go. Uh, firstly and foremost, I think it really came back to the relationships we had with our investors and at the end of the day a bunch of institutional investors stood up for us and said look we want to back mike and the team we think this business is better off as a boutique and we're willing to stand up to macquarie and say now you guys go away and work out a deal that, that makes sense for everyone and i think you know that that kind of was the probably the difference between getting a deal done and not getting a deal done and i think i have to give credit to macquarie as well they saw that for our business it was best to have these alignment of interest characteristics and for a business, you know, kind of the size of Macquarie, it's very difficult for them to provide an exception for a small part of their business. And so, you know, both Macquarie, our investors, and then obviously ourselves as, as you know, the, the management team, you know, felt that this was in the best interests of everyone around the table. And in particular the investors where we can look them in the eye and say, you know what guys, I do a poor job. I don't, I don't get paid. I, you know, I don't have a big brother to kind of fall back on here. It's all about if we succeed and we do a good job for our investors, uh, then I can put, you know, food on the table for the family.
0: And it sounds that business that came out originally was really in this multi manager space of private equity providers and, and listeners to the podcast will be familiar at the back end of last year. We had quite a few, um, private equity, large players and as and sort of a way of educating uh, the listener base and getting them up the, the curve in that space and this private asset opportunity that the endowments have been taking advantage of for quite a while. Uh, we had the likes of KKR on, uh, PEP, Pacific Equity Partners, Camp, Cam Blanks, uh, as well as Goldman Sachs. Mm. Um, I'm keen to understand, given your history in that space, what do you look for in that manager of manager space when you're selecting a private equity investor? What are the characteristics? What are the traits? What are the things that you go, "Uh aha, I like this
1: versus this is a red mark next. Yeah, no, that's a, that's absolutely what we're trying to kind of do with every kind of manager that comes through our, you know, kind of our offices looking for- Because they're all top quartile. Absolutely. You can always cut your numbers to be top quartile, right? And- you know, make exceptions for why you had a poor year or, you know, we don't do, you know, SaaS technology businesses anymore. So look at our great consumer and healthcare, you know, kind of track record. But um, so, you know, that, that leads to probably one of the key things. It's, it's um, consistency in how people deploy capital. So, you know, one of the great things about private equity is, you know, regardless of markets going up and down, there's a number of levers you can pull to add value to businesses through the cycle. So, you know, I kind of, you know, I talk about even in, you know, kind of good market environments, people do silly things. And so there is the opportunity to improve businesses, add operational value, uh, buy assets, uh, divest assets to make businesses better. And I think that fundamental, you know, kind of secret source we're looking for is can this group of investment executives around the private equity table actually make these businesses better through the cycle? And, you know, we, we in essence kind of break down the way they make money and say, how much money did you make by just getting the timing right? You know, and we kind of discount that, you know. If you buy into a, you know, kind of a, a mega cap buyout fund, a lot of the value will actually be driven by, Did you buy at the bottom of the cycle? Did you buy at the top of the cycle? Because a lot of those businesses, they are delisted from equity markets and then relisted because of their sheer scale. And so we kind of, you know, we discount that a little bit. Obviously, it's great if people can get their timing right, but we don't see that as a consistent, you know, a way to add value. Leverage is another great one that we focus in on really hard. Um, We learned this lesson through 06 to 08. Leverage was cheap. I still remember in 2007, Icelandic banks coming to Australia, putting money into private equity deals, being the, the last dollar in, in the Mez strip at you know, eight times EBITDA. And I think you know, Yellow Pages New Zealand was a great example. It was you know, 10 times EBITDA geared. It's like base rates in New Zealand are so high, like it just doesn't make sense. Um, and so we really look for business, for private equity firms that don't use leverage to generate returns. We want these businesses and the private equity firm to work with these companies to drive value through earnings growth, through better management, through better growth rates, through M&A activity, all of which is repeatable through the cycle. And so that is the piece we're looking for. We're looking for what's happened to gross margin. You bought this business. It was on a 30% gross margin. You moved it to 40%. We'll give you a tick. Your EBITDA margin has moved from 5% to 20%. That's a, you know, that's a big tick. You're making these businesses better. You've made them national. You've diversified your customer base, You've diversified your product set. And those businesses then tend to trade on higher multiples. And so we're really looking for people who are willing to roll up their sleeves, get involved with management, make these businesses better, because that is truly you know, kind of repeatable and it kind of works through the cycle. And so they're the types of you know, private equity firms are looking for. And we want to see that they've done it for a period of time you know there's a there's a lot of people that come in and out of the private equity industry and what we're looking for is people who have kind of applied their skill for a period of time and shown they can deliver you know you know kind of rinse and repeat on a regular basis and then probably the final thing we're looking for is alignment of interest and i always give the example follow the money it's kind of a bit of a mantra around around the table in now i see it's like if people aren't willing to put, you know, material sums of their own money at risk in these funds, then you really shouldn't be investing. And, you know, one of the key things we look at is what's the personal wealth of these, you know, private equity professionals uh, outside of their, their business and outside of their funds. And how does that reflect on how much money they're putting into these private equity funds? So it might be that it's a hundred million dollar fund and the teams putting in five million dollars. Uh, and you go, well, that's, you know, kind of, that's a lot of money, but it's not a massive amount of money compared to, say, a, you know, kind of buyout fund that's raising $3 billion and the team's putting in 30 I think, you know, in essence, if that $5 million is really every single dollar of wealth that this emerging manager has got and they've said, we're backing ourselves to the hilt. Here's my mortgage statement from the Commonwealth Bank saying, I've mortgaged my house and I've put $5 million in that's probably more powerful than the group that puts $30 million in, but has net worth outside of the private equity fund of, you know, $500 million, a billion dollars. Uh, and so it's really understanding that dynamic we see as, you know, kind of what we call following the money and making sure that we're aligned with the, the right people in the right way.
0: Been a big theme of ours on this show, that alignment of interest. So I like that you're calling that out. Uh, before we dive into the weeds on the private credit fund, which I want to talk to you about, um, one of the things I just want to talk to you about is the, the the investment house, you've sort of got many different clients with disparate needs and sitting across there. And I notice in, in your deck, even on the private credit fund, you talk about con- conflict-free, avoid participating in both debt um, and, and deals that you lead. Um, <clears throat> how do you juggle or manage those different interests around the table in which you play?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's kind of first and foremost what we focus on as an investment house. You know, the the reality of our business is we're a solutions provider. And so whether that's a solution for an institutional investor or a solution for a high net worth investor, we wanna create the structure that most suits what their needs are. And so in the case of institutional investors, a lot of that is we wanna own these assets directly, Uh, we wanna own our own portfolio, we wanna have portability with that. For high net worths, it might be ease of access. It might be, I don't like call structures. And so we need to have different solutions for different parts of our, our kind of client base. Um, but what we do is we're very transparent with all our investors around how we allocate deals. And so realistically, how it happens is a deal will come into the shop, we will make a call on whether we wanna be on the equity or the debt side. Um, once we make that call, we won't play on the other side. Uh, and then from a debt perspective, for example, uh, we'll make sure that everyone's allocations are known upfront and we do that through a portfolio plan. Similar model on the equity side, we have what we call portfolio plans. We give those to the clients. So we say, well, we've got, say, you know, quadrant private equity coming to market over the next 12 months. We'll need $100 million of exposure to that for our clients because each client, client A might need 20 million, client B will need 20 million, client C will need 20 million and so on. And so if, you know, kind of that gets scaled back by any way, all the clients see what that exposure is. It's pro rata allocated. uh, And it works really well because people understand the transparency. They understand where we're managing conflicts because there are, you know, potential conflicts in having a multi-strategy business. Um, But we're super transparent. And I think one of the the key, you know, tenants of our business is, we want to be, you know, kind of long-term partners to everyone that we work with. So that might be clients, but it might also be the private equity firms we work with. It might be advisors in the market. It might be our high net worth investors. Um, Australia's a small place at the end of the day. People kind of run into each other all the time. And, and and you know, kind of likewise with our employees, we want to be an employer of choice. And, and, and we want people to think, these guys are in it for the long term. They're not here to get rich quick. Private markets generally is a long term game. And so we want to be able to stand there in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years' time and say to people, look, we said this is what we're going to do and we've delivered it. And you're talking to the same people. Those relationships in this market are super important. Uh, it means you get the first call on deals. It means your investors come back to you when they have other demands. And that's really how we started the, the agri business, for example, our clients on the private equity side said to us, we want to get exposure to agri. We trust you guys to build a program here for us that, that works. And so that long-term relationship model is you know kind of very close to us all in, in, in terms of the way we operate. And so anything around conflict is just a no-go zone. We just kind of steer, there's plenty of deals, Um, we don't need to do every deal. If there's a potential perceived conflict, we just step out of it. And one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, last year, we spoke to a lot of
0: private equity managers globally, and there seems to be a a theme, particularly here in Australia, about the democratisation of private equity. And and as you've alluded to, uh, high net worth individuals now coming into the space that was really there for institutional investments, endowments, etc. And I think The the message that we're receiving, and I'm interested in your view, is that we're seeing some large institutional investors like the large superannuation funds who are marketing themselves with a very uh, fee-orientated marketing push as being low cost and cheap um, that doesn't always fit well with private equity where traditionally you've had managers who have created a lot of value and they've been paid very well for doing that. Um, Consequently, lots of these managers are now saying, well, if the super funds aren't going to pay us for this, well, we'll go and get the money from high net worth individuals. Is that a trend that you're seeing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that really does bug me to a certain extent. I think what we've seen is, you know, in the US foundations, endowments, family offices, high net worth individuals have been investing in venture capital and private equity for longer than the institutions. You know, the, the industry started by a bunch of, you know, kind of high net worth individuals putting a little bit of money with groups like Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia and Mayfield. Um, in Australia, we kind of had the reverse situation. I still recall trying to raise a, call it a retail fund in the early 2000s and uh, ran around regional New South Wales, regional Victoria, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, you name it. And we raised about $20 million out of that market. Whereas I think now an individual investment house in that high net worth space would raise, you know, uh, you know, an order of magnitude more than that for a, for a, for the same product. Uh, and so I think there's, there's probably a couple of things going on around high net worth. That's really exciting. Uh, one is, I think the, the, the whole industry around wealth in Australia is maturing. And I kind of give the example of, you know, kind of 20 years ago, um, The way wealthy individuals, I think, operated was they were really super successful in their business. They might've had a great manufacturing business, a great retail business. uh, And so the kind of primary source of their wealth was their operating business. And so you talk to them about diversification and they say, well, I'm going to go buy another manufacturing plant and run that too, or I might buy another retail brand and I'll add that to my portfolio. Um, but actually operating those businesses. And I think what we've seen just in the last, i would put it down to the last 10 years, is this real generational shift from operating businesses to more passive income streams. So, you know, dad and mum might've run a construction business, um, you know, kind of in, you know, the South Coast, New South Wales. And so they would put all their wealth into making that construction business the best business in their region. The kids... Are educated and have become investment bankers, private equity managers, wealth advisors, doctors, dentists, lawyers. They don't necessarily a, have the skill set or the inclination to go and run a construction business on the south coast or a manufacturing plant in Western Sydney or, or the outskirts of Melbourne. Uh, and so, what's occurred is this wealth has changed from uh, operating business wealth to a, uh, you know, call it more traditional. Uh, long-term family office model. And I think that's where places like Coda have really come into their own is, is managing, managing that wealth on behalf of a broad set of dependents. And that's really opened up the private equity and venture capital space, I think for the first time. So all these founders and entrepreneurs, you know, kind of, um, baby boomer generation, you know, business owners, they ran private equity businesses. They were private equity. Um, their kids and their dependents are now getting it in a different way through kind of more traditional kind of asset class style models. And so that's really changed the nature of who is investing in, in private equity and, and venture capital in Australia. Um, at the same time, what we've seen is the institutions focus more and more on fees. And I think initially it was more of a competitive positioning aspect. We want to be the lowest cost because I think at the end of the day, you know, kind of returns are variable and you can't always get your best returns but fees are fixed. And so if you're marketing a super fund, it's very easy to say, we're the lowest cost operator in the market, so give us all your money. Um, What that's meant though, is it's become increasingly difficult for these organisations to invest in private equity in a more traditional way. Uh, And now the regulator has also come on board with getting to low cost. And what kind of bugs me, I think, and and maybe I'm a little bit of a socialist at heart here, but the, the reality is what's happened is we've got to this point where... The, you know, the member of the superannuation fund, and you think about industry super in Australia. It's the nurses, it's the policemen, it's the firemen, it's the, the cleric, it's the people kind of earning eighty to a hundred thousand dollars a year, working really hard, doing all the tough jobs. Um, they can't afford they can't afford independent financial advice, and so they're kind of relying on their superannuation fund to create a nest egg for them. Um, you know, as a result of the regulatory environment we're in and the competitive pressure we're in in that part of the market, uh, those individuals who can't afford independent investment advice are missing out on some of these really high return asset classes because they are inherently more expensive because they are more operationally focused, uh, and so they will miss out on retirement income because for their forty-year career in the police force or in the you know teaching industry. They've missed out on that one or two percent of alpha that's created by the private market's, you know, net of fees. And so you compound that over a long period of time. And so what's happening is those portfolios are now being allocated and you know, we're being, you know, successful buying some of those portfolios on the secondary market. Superfund's saying we're out of this asset class because it's too expensive. We buy those, and who are the the kind of buyers of those? It's been the high net worth investors. They sit there and they say, we understand this is more expensive. But we're looking at net returns you can't eat fee reductions you can eat net returns yeah and so i had a large client just say to me david you know very recently i
0: caught up with him and he said look i don't mind people making lots of money as long as i'm making lots of money
1: absolutely absolutely And i think we've got this really kind of strange position in the australian institutional market where investors would prefer 6% a 6% return with no fees over a 30% net return with maybe four or 5% of fees leakage. And and that to me just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, you know,
0: going back 15 years where I was uh, active more in the, the corporate advisory space and uh, uh, I, was, I was actually acting for a research house on their own default superannuation fund and one of their members, their employees really objected to the total investment cost of one of the fund managers, which was for the year, it was three or 4%. And, and they sort of called that out and said, look, Joe, you know, you know, this is outrageous. How can it be? And I said, well, I hope it's the same, if not more next year, because they actually delivered 40% that year. So let, let's hope it's more. Let's dive into the private credit fund. You, mm-hmm. you alluded to it before in one of these recent funds, I think 2021, you created it at the zero Um, interest rate environment of people looking for yield and you saw this opportunity maybe you can articulate for listeners what the fund is
1: what its objective is and how it goes about its uh, delivering that objective yeah no uh, happy to and you know the the genesis of the the private credit fund was really sitting around as i said earlier um, some of these portfolio companies in our private equity business and looking at kind of what was happening with debt capital markets and, and you know the the banking system here we do have a big four system, the reality of you know lending into private equity is of those big four, generally two are active, one is on the fringe, and one's probably inactive at any given time, and they kind of those deck chairs get shuffled on a regular basis, and so there's a real lack of choice around kind of where you can get debt capital for from 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 the Australian local market from from the banking system, uh, and so as a result of that, there's the opportunity to see you know, outsized returns, you know, kind of it's, it's not, you know, any different to any other asset class, uh, you know, kind of, you know, the demand for credit, but there's no supply or limited supply. And so price goes up. Uh, and so we saw this opportunity and we said, well, we're looking at these businesses on a regular basis. We have great relationships with the private equity firms in Australia. We've, we've known them since their inception, you know, for a lot of them, we were the first institutional investor on their books. Um, we have great access to deal flow here. We have a great bunch of investors who would love to get, you know, kind of five to 7% net at that time and, and probably more now with rising base rates uh, in some really high quality businesses. So, you know, you think the best radiology business in the country, we've lent to that business. Um, it's a business that's worth, you know, 10 times EBITDA every day of the week. Um, very robust, stable business, Leverage on that was three times EBITDA. So, you know, we know there's the ability to service the debt. We know that this business has, you know, kind of a lot of equity sitting behind us. And we could generate really kind of outsized, you know, debt returns on that. Similarly in the NDIS space, similarly in financial services, you know, kind of insurance broking, you know, a pretty core part of most businesses. We can lend to these businesses relatively light in terms of leverage. It's senior secured. Uh, and we're generating, you know, kind of really great outsized returns as a result. And and as we've built this business, we've just seen more and more opportunity. I think the other piece that has led to the explosion of private credit in the U.S. and Europe is the flexibility that comes with non-bank, you know, money. We can operate more quickly. We, you know, we can stand behind what we say. Uh, we can be more flexible on terms, uh, and so that really creates a competitive advantage for us. So a combination of this deal flow coming in from our relationships in the market, combined with you know what's a really you know kind of nice kind of margin that we can generate for, for the fund, means we're seeing some really high quality deal flow. We're getting really nice you know kind of downside protection on these businesses, but we're generating great yield to investors that are coming into the fund. And, and
0: what sort of security uh, are uh, investors offered? You know, are they all senior secured? Um, if they're uh, slightly below that, how, how does that work?
1: So it's, so we're, we're, you know, we're really looking to be at the top of the capital stack. So mm-hmm. it really is senior secured. We may take a second lien, but we're really l- making a call there on the amount of leverage uh, in, in, the, in the portfolio company. Um, you know, we're looking for businesses that are robust and can kind of carry if we are taking second lien loans. Um, carry that kind of debt. So we're kind of looking to get paid like a second lien, but have the, the risk profile of a senior secured position if we are taking a second, um, second ranking charge. Um, but predominantly the business that we're, businesses that we're banking, we are the senior secured position. Um, I think the other piece that's really important here is we're taking floating rate exposure. So unlike your more traditional fixed income assets, where you do have a duration impact and as we've seen rates go up, you know, you've seen losses in the in the fixed income portion of people's portfolios um, because we are floating rate, we're getting the benefit of this higher uh, base rate coming through. And so our, our running yield continues to just tick up as the RBA continues to push rates up.
0: And are the underlying securities mark to market or are you writing a loan and just uh, harvesting
1: the yield? So we're really just harvesting the yield. And so, um, you know, obviously, you know, if we do see impairment, we need to write that loan down. but. Um, but you're not getting the short-term volatility of traditional fixed interest Absolutely. investors. Absolutely.
0: We're, we have been quite active over the last seven years. And as you pointed out early that, you know, if you look at other jurisdictions in the US and Europe, uh, 90% of this lending or thereabouts is provided by non-bank lenders in Australia. It's almost mm. the opposite way around. However, lots have come into the market over that time, um, is it really the, is it the relationships, the secret source where you sit, that, that competition? How, how
1: do you see that? I think it's it's a combination of factors. I think one is we've been around private markets for a long time. And, and you know, you pointed out, David, the, the aspect of relationships and, you know, getting that first call, whether it's on our private equity business, our agri business or our private credit business, we want to be the first call uh, because, you know, if it's a great deal, the first call will get the deal. Uh, And so we're really focused on trying to be the first call for every part of our business. And and in particular on private credit, the relationships we have in the market, we think makes us, you know, in a lot of cases, we know the deal's coming before the the lead debt uh, arranger knows it's coming because we know what deals are in the market. We know who's looking at what. And so we'll position ourselves to be, you know, part of that syndicate really early on. Um, So I think that's really important. I think the second piece that's really important is We've been looking at, you know, debt positions for twenty five years. So we've seen the cycles. We've seen the industries that don't work to be highly levered in a private equity context. We've seen, you know, the risk of rising interest rates on particular kind of industry exposures. And so You know, how we've built this program is really with a view that at some stage, you know, and we were thinking about this two years ago, at some stage, we're going to see rising rates, we're going to see a slowdown in the consumer, we're going to see the economy maybe kind of weakening and unemployment rising. Every deal we do, we need to be cognizant of that as a, you know, kind of risk scenario. And so you'll see in our portfolio, we're not doing retail. We're not doing construction loans. We're not doing mining services. We're not doing industries that really have that volatility. They might be great equity plays. And I think, you know, that's really something that, you know, as an investor, whether you're, you know, kind of in private markets or in public markets, a business that's a great equity deal may not be a great debt deal, you know, and something that's a great debt deal might not be a great equity deal. And having that experience and longevity in the market to know this business, I'll lend to this business every day of the week, but the equity story is pretty ho-hum. Or look, this is a business that just shouldn't take debt on. It's all equity play. It's a growth capital deal. Let's just kind of think about it in an equity context. I think that's really important. Um, And then I think it's the quality and the depth of our diligence. So, you know, we come from you know, private credit, private equity, really from a bottoms up mindset. So we're, we're diligencing these companies from top to bottom. You know, it does take, you know, four to eight weeks to turn these businesses upside down, do commercial due diligence, financial due diligence, legal due diligence. We want to make sure that when we go into a business, whether it's a credit position or an equity position, that we really understand that business and we have a plan for it. Um, before we actually go and, and, and kind of print the ticket.
0: Now, Mike, this might be semantics, but I noticed you call the fund private credit fund. We've had quite a few others in similar spaces who use the term private debt. Do you see a difference in this fund to some of them or is it inter intermingled?
1: Is there a hard line there somewhere? I, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, probably people interchange those two on a regular basis. I think the way... We are positioning our fund is we are you know we are cash flow lenders and so the the exposure you'll get is not to to assets per se it'll be to businesses and you know we think you know that you know particularly at this point in time having no exposure to to real estate no exposure to assets as part of that lending portfolio is really a, a good place to be uh, you know the businesses that we own really stable industries, you know, kind of resilient to, to a downturn in the economy. And we understand those businesses really well because we've been analysing these businesses for 20, 25 years. And so we're very comfortable making those corporate lending decisions uh, in businesses that have, you know, you know, kind of modest leverage paying, you know, great cash flow out of their business. Uh, great equity sponsors as well. You know, that also can't be underestimated is being able to work with the equity sponsor because, you know, even the best deals do have a risk of going bad and, and understanding how those equity sponsors behave in that scenario. Do they let the business fall over? Do they, you know, kind of put more equity in to help support the debt? Do they help restructure the business? That's a really important part of what we're doing here as well.
0: And Mike, to wrap up, um, maybe you can talk about your outlook of where we're going over the next year or two uh, in 2023 and beyond?
1: Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, the way I think about, call it 2022, is it was an inflection point in markets. I think the realisation that, um, you know, rates were going up, that the economy was probably pretty strong. Uh, I think, you know, you, you overlay a lot of money flooding the system through COVID, whether it was support payments, the fact people couldn't spend, uh and then that rebound, you know, revenge consumer. Um I think what we're seeing in twenty twenty three is um, you know, twenty twenty two was all about buy sell spreads. You know, kind of I think, you know, if you look at, you know, kind of private markets generally, you know, the the seller is always looking backwards in those kind of market environments. They're so saying in December twenty one, I could have got twelve times EBITDA for my business. The buyer's looking at it and saying, geez, rates are going up, the economy's a bit softer, this business is well worth eight times EBITDA. And it always, and we've seen this through, you know, kind of just going back through time, you think about the GFC, European debt crisis, venture capital 1.0, dot com, dot bust. Every time we have these inflection points in markets, it takes six to 12 months for people to work out is it eight times, is it 12 times, or is it somewhere in between? And I think what we'll see in 2023 is we will see, you know, that buy, sell, spread closing. Um, You know, it'll probably, you know, I think valuations got too high um, through 21 and into early 22. They will pull back. We'll see kind of deals done. That'll be great for deal flow on the private credit side. I think the other piece that's really quite fascinating for us is around what we call secondary transactions. So... um, what uh, what secondaries are is when you're buying mature positions of private equity portfolios off other investors and if you think back to what happened through 2020 to you know early 22 um, you had a lot of money come into private markets a lot of it for the first time assets being held longer than historically they have. So particularly around growth equity deals, you saw what used to be three-year holds become five-year holds, businesses staying private longer. Um, You saw the uh, velocity of capital raising increasing. So historically, venture capital managers will come back every three years, private equity managers about the same. What we saw through 21 and 22 was venture capital managers coming back every year, Uh, private equity managers coming back every two years. And so what we're seeing is, and then what you've had subsequent is, a, you know, 20% reduction in equity market valuations and 10 in fixed income. Uh, and so what you're seeing is a lot of mature pools of capital around the world, particularly foundations, endowments, uh, you know, the, the pension funds in the US, North America, Europe, uh, they're actually now over allocated to private equity. Uh, and so the opportunity will come where these groups all start selling positions And investors coming into the market for the first time can take advantage of that. They'll need to sell because their asset allocation is all out of whack. Uh, You know, their kind of outlook on the markets is not probably a fast rebound. It's probably a grind from here. And so they look at it and they say, well, for me to be able to support some of my best relationships in the market, I need to sell some of my other positions. And so I think we'll see a real ramp up in secondary transactions, not only in Australia, but globally in, in private markets over 2023.
0: Terrific. And uh, I told Fib, I'm going to ask one more um, and and leave you. And you've been very generous with your time. So thank you. Um, If you think about the average high net wealth or family that's done well in these businesses and these entrepreneurs, uh, thinking about the common mistakes you see them make in transitioning from the creators of the wealth through that business in the South Coast or similar into something that's more of a diversified wealth management type of Arrangement. What what are some of the common mistakes that you see them make?
1: Yeah, I think I think the biggest mistake that I see you know, on a regular basis is not having a plan, and and that's where I'd suggest you know kind of getting wealth advice is really important. You know, you you probably have put every dollar of your kind of savings into your business, and if all of a sudden you know someone like me turns up and pays you two hundred million dollars for your business, and you have a two hundred million dollar kind of cash account sitting there saying, what am I going to do with it? And what we've seen, you know, time in, time out is really, you know, kind of people tend to get, you know, particularly early as they're thinking about how they deploy capital, they get a little bit caught up on what's right in front of them on that day. Um, you know, so it might be there's a great venture capital deal that they want to put $5 million in because this thing's going to change the world. And they'll do 20 of those. And then, in, you know, kind of in... A year's time, they go, oh, my God, like not only are some of them underperforming, but how the hell do I manage all this? And so I think the real advice I would give is, you know, take your time. You know, investment opportunities come in every day. So don't feel like sitting on cash for three to six months to get some real professional advice around how you deploy this with a plan. Um, Private equity, we always focus. One of the biggest mistakes people make in private markets is what we call vintage diversification invest through the cycle, because you might have a crystal ball, but you still won't get the markets right. And so having the ability to invest through time is really quite important. And so that plan and work with an advisor to say, how much do we want to deploy into privates? Any liquids versus publics? What is our liquidity requirement as a family or as a group of individuals that um, we need to think about? You know, And adjust your private market exposure on that basis. And then have a plan around how you execute that. So don't expect to get set in private markets in three months. Don't do every deal that comes across your desk in the first two weeks you have this wealth because I'm sure a whole people bunch of people will turn up at your door, knock on your door and say, I've got this great deal. Um, take your time, plan it out, get good advice uh, and make sure you set it up for the for the long-term.
0: Mike, I love it. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure, thank you, David. O- Cheers.
1: Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codercapital.com.